welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues the series of messages on the miracles of Jesus, today looking at healing from permanent disabilities. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at four recordings of Jesus healing men who had been mute. I'm going to be looking at these four healings under the following definition of what a miracle is. Now, you may have your own definition of what a miracle is, but for my sake of study this morning, this is how I define a miracle. A miracle is an event that is brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature or temporary suspension of the laws of nature or in our examples today, healings that defy medical explanation. And these occurrences are things that God uses to show his compassion, to show his authority and his sovereignty, and in the case of Jesus' mission on earth, to also authenticate his claim as Messiah. Of the miracles that we're looking at this morning in the Bible, the Bible records some of these healings as being just of, just of men who are mute, Another one was deaf and mute, and another one was blind and mute. In three of these passages, demon possession was also involved. And two of these passages, two of them are found in Matthew, one of them is found in Mark, one of them is found in Luke. That's a lot to try and accomplish in 30 minutes, and we have a lot to go through. But I'm going to break it down into four segments. We're going to briefly look at each one's story, and we'll look at the similarities and differences of these miraculous healings. And we're going to look at how in three of these uh, uh, healings, Jesus was accused of being in league with Satan. And we're also going to look at the question of miracles in today's world. Well, let's jump right in with the first miraculous healing that Jesus performed. We can find that in Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 to 34. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It's only by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is a very short description of a man who was possessed by a demon, which made him unable to be able to speak. This man was brought to Jesus just after Jesus had previously healed two men who were blind. It would have been more of a footnote in Matthew had not the Pharisees' response to the crowd's amazement been this. It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Was it jealousy that caused them to make this comment? Or did they see Jesus as a threat to their power? Or did they actually believe that Jesus was part of Satan's realm as opposed to being the messianic king? as some was beginning to think. Whatever the thoughts were that these Pharisees uh, had in their mind when they spoke these words, they would only become more and more entrenched in them, as we shall see. It's interesting to note that in three of these healings that we're looking at today, Jesus performed them before an audience that was at least partially hostile to him. Even those opposed to him could not, defy, could not deny that these miracles took place and they were witness to them. Well, moving along to the next healing that Jesus performs, it involves a man who is both deaf and mute. It's found in Mark chapter 7, 
verses 31 to 37. Starting at verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched, his, touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh he said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Once again, the crowd that was present at this healing was amazed. And in fact, Mark records the crowd as being overwhelmed with amazement. Have you ever noticed how Jesus never seems to heal the same way twice in all these Bibles accounts? How the circumstances differ surrounding the person or the healing itself. There's a unique interaction that goes on between Jesus and the man who was deaf and mute. Here is someone who was brought to Jesus by a group, and we don't know the relationship between the group and this man, but they begged Jesus to heal him. Jesus did something that I believe shows compassion towards this man who could not speak, who could not hear and could hardly speak. Jesus took him away from the crowd. Not only was Jesus giving this man his full attention, but by taking him away from the crowd, this man was able to give Jesus his full attention as well. And what Jesus did next speaks to his understanding of our needs. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears and he touched his tongue. It's as if Jesus was communicating with a form of sign language what he was about to do for this man. He also spat. I'm still trying to figure out the symbolism behind that. Last week, Steve kind of spoke to the seemingly oddness of such actions. And then Jesus looked up to heaven with a sigh. He spoke the Aramaic word, Ephatha. Immediately, immediately the man could hear and speak plainly. Almost without exception, when Jesus healed someone, the person was immediately well. Even those who were paralyzed immediately got up and walked. There was no indications of muscle atrophy or balance issues. When this man could hear all of a sudden, it wasn't that he was able to hear words clearly for the first time so that in time he would be able to learn these words and speak clearly. No, he spoke clearly immediately. Let's move on to our our third miraculous healing before us this morning. This one's found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 32. Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 22. Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan drives out Satan... He's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Once again, the crowd is amazed or astonished as it's recorded in in this uh, translation. In fact, in all four of these passages that we have this morning, the crowd was amazed or astonished at what took place. Well, the fourth healing that I want to look at this morning is found in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 23. And it's a very similar account to what we've just read from Matthew chapter 12. So I'm not going to read that one. We're going to look at these two together because of their similarity. We can derive from these two passages that the exorcism of demonic spirits was not uncommon among the people. Some view that Jesus was not implying that the Pharisees or their disciples were indeed actually casting out demons, but rather they gave the appearance that they were able to do so through various means. But Jesus doesn't specifically state that. So whether you ascribe to this view or the view that the Pharisees' disciples were indeed able to cast out demons, the point that Jesus makes is, why do you ascribe a double standard to me? When Jesus was accused of being able to drive out demons only through the power of Satan or Beelzebub, the prince of demons, Jesus responds, if that's the case, then by whom do your followers drive them out? The people were beginning to wonder, could this be the son of David? And again, we have to ask the questions, was it jealousy that caused the Pharisees to make these comments or did they see Jesus as a threat to their power? Or did they actually believe that Jesus was part of Satan's realm as opposed to being the messianic king? The authors of the, of the Gospels don't give us direct answers to this question, but if we take a look at the circumstantial evidence surrounding these passages, I think we can come up with a strong probability of what that answer is. If the Pharisees did believe that Jesus was actually a member of Satan's realm, then the logic of a divided kingdom not being able to stand against itself would have certainly put question marks into those accusations. And certainly the parables that Jesus spoke in support of his divided kingdom statement should have further persuaded them that this couldn't be the answer. That is, if their ears were attentive to hearing the answer. Not all, not all the Pharisees had their ears closed. You all know the story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to Jesus at night looking for answers. And he listened to Jesus. And Jesus had a profound impact on him. And we can see that by the actions of Nicodemus later on in the Bible. I think that the likely motive for these Pharisees speaking these words is that they saw Jesus as a threat to their power or that they saw him as an influence among the people and they weren't willing to give up their own influence among the people. It was after Jesus, it was after the people began asking, could this be the son of David. David's descendant, the one who would come and rule over us and heal our land. It was after this that the Pharisees set themselves on the path that whether they realized it or not, in time, it would cause them to be at odds with the one who created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, Jesus being God knew their thoughts. This is a totally unfair advantage in any war of words. But who am I to say God can't make up his own rules? And Jesus answers their accusations with a three-pronged reply. Jesus didn't always defend himself so, assert- so assertively. But in, this, in the case of these two passages, he puts forth a compelling case of why this accusation could not be correct. <clears throat> Jesus' first argument in his case against the Pharisees' claim is the divided kingdom statement that we looked at earlier in trying to establish the Pharisees' motives for making these statements. Jesus pointed out that if he were casting out a demon by Satan's power, then Satan would be working against himself. Well, why would Satan let someone cast out a demon and free a man who already belonged to him, who was already under his control? To do so would divide Satan's kingdom and cause it to be able to fall. Now, Jesus' second argument that he employed was to ask the Pharisees about the contemporary Jewish exorcists who were able to, or who who appeared to be able to, cast out demons by the power of God. If you believe exorcists work by the power of God in casting out demons, why do you say, I can't have the same power myself, Jesus asked them. Jesus challenged the double standard that the Pharisees were using. No doubt Jesus was saying in Matthew 12, as well as the Luke 11 account, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the finger of God has come upon you. By making this statement, he would not only have diffused their double standard statement, but it would also challenge their opposition to people thinking, is Jesus the Messiah? Now, Jesus' third argument was that by driving out demons, he was proving he was greater than Satan. Jesus used the parable of first having to overpower a strong man before you can take away his possessions. Think of it this way. Think of Satan as being that strong man who has accumulated a kingdom full of wealth that is the souls of men and women. He has acquired these souls through dishonest gain, and now Jesus had kicked in the door of Satan, and he had bound Satan, and he was releasing those captives. What Jesus was implying is that he not only has the authority, but he used that authority to first overpower Satan by casting out these demons. And then he carried off, or he rescued, that soul from Satan's domain whom he had just healed. There's an interesting field trip that Jesus takes his disciples on that also speaks to the authority that the Son of Man has over Satan. And we can find that in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Caesarea Philippi, which is at the northern end of modern Israel today, was in Jesus' day a location known for idol worship, and the ruins of those temples are still there today. This would no doubt have been a fitting place for Jesus to tell his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Here, symbolically in front of Satan's kingdom, Jesus expressed that the gates of hell will not stop the church that Jesus had come to this earth to establish. In any fortress, gates are purely defensive in nature 
And Jesus pointed out that Satan has no defense against God. Now, one question that may arise from Jesus' third argument, that by driving out demons, he was proving that he is greater than Satan is, if others were also doing the same that is exercising demons through the power of God, is this really proof that Jesus is the Messiah? The answer to that is no. This in and of itself is not proof that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not why Jesus was making these statements here. We have to remember Jesus was using these statements to refute the Pharisees' claim that he was merely doing these things by the power of Satan. It's a good reminder that we must always look to the entire Bible and not focus on one verse to formulate a conclusion. There are so many other verses in the Bible that do attest to Jesus being the Messiah or God's Son. And in fact, Jesus does start to hint at that as we go farther along in these passages. And this is also where we come to a difficult and for some an even frightening part of the passage to understand. And to understand it, we must not only look at these verses, but the Bible as a whole and specifically the context surrounding these verses. For some, the verses that follow has caused a great deal of anxiety for what some call the unforgivable sin. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Jesus invites the people to make a clear choice, and he speaks directly to the Pharisees. They must either be with him or against him. And then he gives a strong warning to those moving away from him. Now, it's understandable that some would not comprehend who Jesus was. I mean, the disciples struggled with that at times. And I believe Jesus makes allowances for that here. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But while the person of Jesus Christ was not fully comprehended, the power evidenced through him, as we see in these miracles, should never have been misunderstood, especially by the religious leaders. And this warning was most of all directed to these Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the people. The nation, because of its leadership, was on the brink of making a decision that would bring irreversible consequences. They were about to attribute incorrectly to Satan the power of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus was exercising and thus blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But why would speaking against the Son of Man be forgivable, but not speaking against the Holy Spirit? I mean, weren't they one and the same person in the form of the Trinity? Jesus wasn't implying that the Holy Spirit of God was higher up on the Trinity ladder than he was. That it was possible for people to speak ill of Jesus and be forgiven because Jesus was an underling to the Holy Spirit. Rather, it wasn't the person of the Holy Spirit that was being warned about being blasphemed here, but rather it was the message that the Holy Spirit was bringing forth. The Pharisees were insisting that the power Jesus had to heal these people came not from God, but from Satan. Jesus, in his warning, was stating that this was a message that God would not excuse and his judgment would be hard against those who promote it. To God and God alone was the credit to go for, for the healing of these men. 
I can forgive you for not recognizing my son and his mission, but I will not forgive, especially you, the religious leaders of my nation, Israel, for not recognizing my power at work. This was God's message to those Pharisees. The consequences would bring God's judgment on the nation and any individual who persisted in that view. Jesus went on to call the Pharisees a brood of vipers and reminded them that on the day of judgment, they will have to stand before God and give an account of these words that they are speaking. This was a brutally clear warning. Well, how does that warning apply to us today? Is it possible to blaspheme the Holy Spirit in such a way that is unforgivable today in this 21st century? To understand how these verses apply to us today, we really have to be mindful of the context surrounding the statements that Jesus made. Jesus gave these warnings to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day. Jesus had been miraculously healing people and casting out demons all throughout Israel. And the Pharisees were attributing the power Jesus had to do such things erroneously to Satan instead of God's spirit. The Pharisees were likely doing this because they were jealous or they saw Jesus as a threat to their power. This specific sin committed by the Pharisees against the Holy Spirit cannot be reproduced today. To do so would require Jesus' presence on this earth today performing miracles and casting out demons just as he did back in those biblical days. And that's not the case. The sin the Pharisees committed was not out of ignorance or unbelief. They witnessed firsthand. They were there when Jesus performed these miracles. They were present. With all their knowledge of prophecy they had regarding the coming uh, Messiah, the Pharisees should have at least been asking themselves the question, could this be the Messiah, the Christ, who was prophesied about long ago? Even if they weren't sure or they wrongly came to the conclusion, no, this is not the Messiah, Jesus said that could be forgiven. But to see the power through which Jesus healed people and cast out demons, they had to have realized this was God's spirit in action and not Satan, even if they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. Even the uneducated people were starting to wonder this and starting to see this. By openly denying what they knew to be true, the Pharisees were aligning themselves with Satan. In fact, they were actually guilty of what they accused Jesus of, and that was to be in league with Satan. This was a path Jesus warned them of that had no return if they continued along, because the ultimate fate of Satan is eternal destruction, and along with him, those who choose to follow him. This is not a warning against those who fight against God's church out of ignorance or unbelief. Paul gave proof to that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 13, when he said, even though I was a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. This is not a warning against those who deny Jesus Christ. Peter denied Christ three times and Christ not only forgave him, but he reinstated him as an apostle. This is not a warning against those who seem to struggle to gain victory over a habitual sin. Just a few chapters uh, farther along in Matthew Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus replied, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And this was not a hard number. Jesus was simply implying, you keep on forgiving your brother. And if Jesus was telling his disciples, you keep on forgiving your brother, do you not think God will not do the same for us? If you sin one million times over the same sin, 
and you come to God with a repentant heart one million and one times, God will forgive you. This is not a warning against those who have wandered away from the faith. The story of the prodigal son attests to the fact that you can return to God and he'll welcome you with the open arms of a loving father. This is not a warning against some inexcusable sin against God from which there is no way back, like cursing God or mocking God. We have the assurance in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which gives us reassurance in that case when it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will, our, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's not one sin that if we have a repentant heart that God will not forgive us from. See, when the Pharisees claimed Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan, they were doing far more than just speaking evil against Jesus. Jesus stated that if that's all they were doing, they could be forgiven if their hearts were repentant. What the Pharisees were doing was far more diabolical. Having all the evidence of the kingdom at hand, they set their faces against that very kingdom of God because of the evil one. They became servants of the evil one. They were rejecting Jesus in full awareness of, and of what he was doing, and they were fully aware of what they were doing. And they were thoughtful and conscious in their words and actions and the rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. Whether it was jealousy, hatred, or arrogance, they knowingly choo- chose to lie to the people they were charged with telling the truth to about God. This was a path that there would be no forgiveness from once you went down as Jesus warned them of. It's not that God was unable to forgive them, but once established on that path and part of Satan's realms, their hearts would be incapable of being repentant. Well, is it possible for church leaders today to embark on such a path, even though we can't replicate this exact sin today in the 21st century because Jesus is not with us on this earth performing miracles like he was in front of the Pharisees. Well, yes, I believe it is possible for church leaders who choose, and listen carefully, who choose to knowingly align themselves with Satan in order to discredit God. I believe very well the fate of those would be the same of these unrepentant Pharisees. This is a harsh warning, and though it was given to Pharisees, we also need to be mindful of it today. But as long as you remember, there's always a path back to God, no matter how far you stray away. As long as you consciously never choose to align yourself with Satan, this is a warning you never need to fear yourself. Well, I'd like to end this morning with a brief look at miracles in today's world. And it is a brief look because this could be a sermon or even a series all onto its own. We've been studying miracles and miraculous healings that Jesus performed while he walked this earth. But the Bible also indicates that Jesus didn't heal everybody. I'd like to end this morning with a brief look at the question of what do you do when the miracle you ask for doesn't occur? If you're expecting a definitive answer from me for your particular situation, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you this morning. But what I can offer you are examples of what others have gone through and hopefully give you encouragement direction, and hope for your own personal journey. I believe that God does miraculously heal people today. There are medically documented cases of people in our modern world being instantly healed that defies medical explanation. Now, I'm not talking about healings with a questionable source or occurrence or 
um, questionable um, um, proof. But rather, I'm talking about miracles that are documented that the medical world just can't explain. Those are occurrences that are exciting to talk about. But what about the time someone prays for a miracle in the life of someone they love to be healed from a life-threatening illness or accident? They may pray long and hard and often and with faith, but the answer is no. What then? There are books and videos and testimonies of people's accounts of God miraculously intervening in their life to save their life or the life of someone they love. And these are exciting to listen to and to read and to to join in their joy. But I've only come across one book apart from the Bible that tackles the question of what do you do and the answer is no. In his book, A Case for Miracles, Lee Strobel devotes a chapter to just that. And I'd like to share with you some of what he writes because I believe there is hope and comfort even when the answer is no. Lee Strobel's wife, Leslie, suffers from fibromyalgia, a painful disease that can be debilitating. Listen to his anguish as he recounts compiling interviews for his book, and this is Lee Strobel speaking. While researching this book, I came across inspiring examples of how God miraculously restored sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and life to the deceased. I vicariously celebrated with the recipient of God's tangible expression of grace. But after I wrote each story, I asked, why no miracle for Leslie? Yes, I know God promises to cause good to emerge from our suffering if we're devoted to him. But why no miracle for Leslie? Yes, I understand suffering produces perseverance and sharpens our character. But why no miracle for Leslie? Yes, I'm aware that there will be no more tears in heaven. But why no miracle for Leslie? Every day my wife is in pain. She needs a miracle. Lee Strobel is not the first to ask this question. Perhaps you're listening to this message this morning, and in solidarity you're asking why no miracle for the one I love. In an interview with Douglas Grutheis, I believe Lee Strobel finds solace in his situation. You see, Grutheis' wife also suffers from a debilitating disease that is causing her to lose all form of communication and the ability for her mind to function. At the time of Strobel's interview, Grutheis' wife still had the ability to tie her shoes, but she had no comprehension of which shoe belonged on the left or the right foot. Together, this husband and wife find comfort in the future promises of God. In the long run, everything will be all right, he tells his wife. There's a new heaven and a new earth to look forward to. This gives the both of them comfort in this time, the situation that they're in. When asked how all of this has affected his relationship with God, Grutheis expressed, I have learned to lament, that is, cry out to God. He goes on to explain there are 60 psalms of lament, There is lament in Ecclesiastes and Job. Jesus laments over the unbelief of Jerusalem. And on the cross, his lament came as a cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus can lament and not sin, I suppose we can. And just as his lament was answered by his resurrection, so ours will be too. At one point, Strobel asked him, Do you feel like if you were God, you would definitely heal your wife? Well, Grutheis' reply is quite profound in light of his situation. He replied, if I were God, I'd be perfect. Therefore, I'd act the same way that he does. 
when asked if he felt unspiritual because he no longer prays for a miracle, he replied, not at all. I have not given up on my faith and I'm not walking away from God. He now prays a prayer of relinquishment, not a prayer of resignation or giving up, but a prayer of relinquishment, giving it all over to God. Grootheis goes on to say, this is my situation at the moment, but acceptance never slams the door on hope. And I would add that hope is like a plumbing pea trap. Without it, life sure stinks. <laughs> the Genos and I came up with that one. And for others, they continue to pray for that miraculously healing in the life of themselves or someone that they love. For them, the parable of the persistent widow who prayed for justice without ceasing is their encouragement to continue praying for a miracle of healing. I believe it's not wrong to keep asking God for that miracle. As long as there is life, there is hope. We all have to approach God in our own way and with our own prayer. And with the understanding that while we only see that one tree in the forest, and that's the one we love standing before us, God sees all the forests of the whole world. And he works out his will for his good and ultimately our good as well. Sometimes that plan involves a miracle healing. Sometimes it involves the miracle of eternal salvation. There's no one-size-fits-all answers to this question. But if I can implore you to do anything, it's to stay close to God. You will not find a greater ally or guide on your journey. Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning. Oftentimes we have more questions than we see answers to. The answers are there. Sometimes we have to open our eyes, open our hearts to you to see them. Sometimes those answers come days, months, even years down the road when we can look back and see with 2020 hindsight what you were doing. Sometimes those answers may not come until we stand before you face to face on the edge of eternity. But you have the answers. You are the one who created the earth. You created us. You loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Jesus walked this earth and he felt the temptations we feel. He felt the pain. He felt the joy, the suffering, the anguish. He felt it all just as we feel it. He not only created us, he knows us intimately. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, edify us, chasten us and strengthen us and correct us, that we would walk away not just feeling good about ourselves, but deeper in love with you every day, each day that's before us. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area. Or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.